I'm John, I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here today. Grab your Bibles and open to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. If you got a Bible or if you're getting a Bible from an usher right now, that is page 669, Isaiah chapter 40. It is a chapter where, it really a section where God is, is going after his people, the Jews, because they're worshiping idols. And he's showing just how, how crazy it is to worship an idol when you could worship the one true God. And uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna start in verse 25 today. So Isaiah 40, verse 25. And if, you, if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. This is God's word. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And it's God's word this morning. You may be seated. And as you are, join me in prayer. God, even though these words were spoken some 2,700 years ago, the same thing that you were seeking to accomplish with these words is the same thing that we need in our lives. The, the, it seems t- typically right now, I'm, I'm gonna pr- I would pray for another church in our area. But God, today, I just, I just wanna lift up the church in America and really the church around the world. There are so many things that we have elevated as, as better than you, as, as more significant than you. And, and we need you to confront those idols and to say to, to your church, hey, don't forget who I am. Don't forget who it is that, that created you and made you and sustains you, gives you strength. God, we, we need a fresh understanding of that. We need, we need revival. We need you to bring repentance because we've, we've elevated other things above you and we need to get back to a high view, the high view of you that we see in this chapter. Do that, please, for the church in America. Do that, please, for the church around the world and do that, please, here this morning for the glory of your name. Amen. So on May 17th of this year, Redeemer Bible Church turned five years old, and it was such a momentous occasion. You remember that online? Yeah, some of you are laughing because you remember that I forgot all about it that day. Almost six years ago when I got here, the church here was on the brink of death, but God in his grace miraculously had turned it around. And when I say that, I mean it. It is a miracle. I've talked to people that know church and have been in church work for many decades. And, and they, they, when they all hear about what, we've, what, what God has done here, they are speechless. And, and let me emphasize that again, what God has done here. He gets all the credit for what's happened here. And I know I'm the, the lead pastor, but, but I'm no different than those guitars behind me. 
I can't take, uh, think about it. Those, those guitars can't take credit for the songs that we just sang. They are nothing without the musician. And me, the staff, this church, we're nothing. We're not even here without God picking us up and saying, this church isn't gonna die and, and using us to, to give new life to a place that was on life support. So while God is the ultimate, he is the real reason why, why things have turned around here. There are always secondary reasons that he uses to bring us where this church is today. These are the things that create the feel, the, the culture, the direction that, that the church is going on. And, and for this church, a little history lesson a little bit, the culture was set when we established our mission statement. You can see it in our programs, on a lot of stuff we do, that we exist to help people know, love, and serve Jesus. This is what we, we exist to accomplish helping as many people as possible come to know Jesus in salvation, to love him more and more as they, they live for him and to serve him wherever they live and work and study and play. I hope it's harder to go to hell from the East Valley because of this church. Now, the individ, the, that individuals and, and that churches exist uh, to help people know, love, and serve Jesus, that, that's not a new idea. That summary, it turns out, has, has been around for quite a while. So Pastor Jonathan Edwards, back in 1731, said this, the proper happiness of the reasonable creature. And we need a translation because he was a brain on a stick. So translation of that is this, the, the highest happiness of human beings is, quote, it consists Quote, in knowing and loving and serving God. Another author, A.W. Pink in the early 1900s, put it this way, quote, we, we should live to the glory of God in every respect, that we should, that should be our supreme desire of our lives, that we desire to know him, love him, and serve him. Another author summarizing Martin Luther's teaching in the 1500s, put it this way, to know Christ, to love Christ, to serve and confess Christ by word and deed. That was to Luther, that was Christianity. Yet another author, Simon Kistemacher, 2001, describing life in the New Jerusalem. He's describing Revelation 21. He says this, the people there will quote, fully know him, love him and serve him and forever taste his goodness. And finally, Charles Spurgeon, September 15th, 1870 said this. He goes, I know this. The most enthusiastic people in all the church are those that know him and love him and live with him and serve him. The enthusiasm of heaven seems to be about them. And I say, I want to see the enthusiasm of heaven amongst all of us. Don't you want that here? Don't you want that where you go to church? Now, if you've been to our next steps, which is our kind of visitor's lunch, we'll do another one of those soon. You know that no love serve is simply a, a restatement of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where Jesus says, go. That's summarized by the word serve. It's the idea that wherever you're going, where you live, work, study and play, you, you are there to serve and advance the ministry of Jesus. Go therefore, make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's, that's no. No, that, that, that's the people would know Jesus and be saved and then they get baptized, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. So that idea, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded is what we've summarized to say, that's loving Christ. 
So this is the text. This is one of the standard texts by which every church will be judged. And I believe because the church are the people in the church, that this is one of the the texts by which every Christian's life is going to be judged. What part did you play with the life that God gave you to help people know, love, and serve Jesus? Now, with the the church's mission in mind, what we're going to talk about today is the core values of Redeemer Bible Church. Our mission statement is what we do, help people know, love, and serve Jesus. Our values are how we do that. So this is, this is describing how we're gonna help people know, love, and serve him. Our values shape what is, well, what, what is valuable to us here. These are activities that will keep us on track with this mission that God's given us in his word. Now you might be asking like, why is John doing that today? Well, just like we've all been given a reset on life after the pandemic, I think a, a message like this is, is meant to give our church a bit of a reset. You know, I, I'm, more, I'm more comfortable talking through texts, you know, so messages like this are going to feel kind of odd to me, but messages like this are essential every once in a while because it's, it's easy to drift from our core values, especially after, uh, after all of you and, and after the church, after we, we had to shift everything in our lives back in March. So a message on our values, I hope we'll, we'll have a, a sense of recentering and remember, okay, who is it that God wants us to be and what is it that God wants us to do as a church? So as I'm describing this, if you've been a part of the ministry for a while, my hope is that you're going, yeah, I I see that. Yeah, yeah, I've experienced that. Yeah, that's happening at Redeemer. And if you're newer and you're you're kicking the tires a little bit, you're like, do I wanna go to church here? I hope you hear in these values, the same values you have in your life and the same values that you have for a church. Now, our values start where the Bible starts, with God. So core value number one, we have a high view of God. We have a high view of God. While many Christians think that we should tone God down, that we should put a a nice candy shell around him so that he will be easier to swallow for people in our day, we cannot disagree more with that. The church exists to bring glory to God. uh, Ephesians 3.21 is a prayer, quote, to God be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. We want to be an answer to that prayer in this generation, that that we will be a church that makes God look great in everything that we do. If there's one place on earth where everything that God is and, and everything that God's done is prioritized, if there's one place in the universe that should major on everything God is, it should be a church. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which includes doing church, do it all to the glory of God. Our job as Christians and collectively as a church is to make God look great because God is great. There's no one greater. If you're still in Isaiah 40, again, God is comparing himself to idols so that his people would see how idiotic it is to worship idols instead of him. Look at verse 12. So I want to give you a taste of, of what God is doing here. Let's read that first, that, that first phrase. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Hollow of, his, of your hand is, is right here. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Answer, no one. Presumably, this is referring to the waters. This is, this is the oceans. If you, if you wanted to drink the ocean, you'd need a stomach bigger than Alaska. And if you were to drink the ocean at one gallon a second, it would take you 11 trillion years to drink the ocean. And God's like, I think it's in one of the creases. Like, yeah. Look at verse 12 again. Next phrase, who's marked off the heavens with a span? The span is the distance between your thumb and your pinky. This is for our people watching in Hawaii right now. <laughs> This is the span. The heavens are likely the universe, which scientists estimate is 93 billion light years long. 
Traveling at the speed of light, that would take you 93 billion years to go from one side of the universe to the next. How many miles is that? Well, there's 5.9 trillion miles in one light year. So 93 billion times 5.9 trillion is five with 23 zeros after it. That's how many miles there is between one end of the universe and the other. And God's like, yeah, it's about that big. That's all, about that big. Drop down to verse 26. We read this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who creates these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Do you see what God just said there? This is talking about planets and stars and NASA estimates the number of stars to be 10 with 23 zeros after it. And God's like, there's Bob, there's Martha, there's Sue. Like just go, he's got a name for every single one of them that we are just scratching the surface on how great and glorious God is. And yet when you, you take this great and glorious God, that is just not who the majority of people that go to church every Sunday are thinking about when they, they think about him. Because he's not our buddy. He's not our life coach. He's not our personal ATM. He's not our, our genie, our medicine, our therapist. He is God. He created you. He owns you because he created you. He is the only standard for right and wrong. He's the master, father, and king, all of which makes him holy, which means he is far above us, separated from us, exalted above us. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And it is blasphemous to try to turn that around, which we often try to do. We should never try to bring God down to our level. In fact, he chastises people in Psalm 50, verse 21. He says, why are you treating me as if I was just like you? I'm not. It's like a teeter-totter. When your view of God goes up, your view of you goes down. And when your view of you goes up, God goes down. You can't have both up at the same time. You have a broken teeter-totter at that point. So rather than putting the spotlight on us, which I know is weird because I have one on me right now, but instead of putting the spotlight on us, our goal is to put it on God. Every service, every song, every meeting, every ministry, a high view of God. Putting God in his rightful place and leaving him there, taking him seriously, as seriously as we possibly can. What that does is it lifts our worship. And, and and worship is more than singing. Worship is our lives. The depths of worship depend on how, on how high a view of God that you have. And since we become like what we worship, if he's, if he's holy, if he's good, if he's loving, if he's kind, if he's all of those things, whatever he is, we become like him as we worship him. A high view of God, in other words, crushes pride. A high view of God makes us more like Jesus. Nobody had a higher view of Jesus than, than he did. When people taste a high view of God. It deepens their devotion to God. It empowers their prayers to God. It encourages our commitment to God. It energizes our, our ministry. It, 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 it propels our evangelism. It, a high view of God actually ties everything in the Christian life together. And the higher God gets, the, the greater we realize the separation is between him and us. As that grows, the more amazing grace becomes, Right? Your wonder at God's grace deepens as your view of God goes higher. A low view of God with a high view of human beings trivializes grace. And the church and the music and the message and the ministries will then mostly be about us. Me monsters love places that revolve around them. But listen, heaven is not going to be a hall of mirrors where we are just amazed at how wonderful we are. I wouldn't be surprised if there are no mirrors in heaven. Because we will be overcome by the greatness and the glory of God. 
Heaven is about God and church should be on earth as it is in heaven, where God is seen as much as humanly possible in all his greatness and glory and splendor and majesty. Our focus then as a church should be on promoting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. History is his story. All of us are extras. He is the star. We should all be seen as the answer to Jesus' prayer when he told us to pray, hallowed be your name. That's the first thing Jesus told us to pray. Not thank you for this day, but hallowed be your name. To hallow something is to make it holy, to set it apart, to recognize it as distinct and unique and special. When Jesus told us to pray that, he's saying, keep God in this separate category from everything else in the world. Keep him not just separated, but high above everything else in the world. Make everything God is, make everything he's done, make him more special to you. Keep him as more special to you than anything else in your heart and especially anything else in the church. And that I think is what, what church is supposed to do. You're, we should be a part. We should be experiencing a hallowing of God's name because of a high view of God. It's praying, help me in every area of my life, my friendships, my family, my work, my school, everywhere. Help me keep you in that special place that you alone deserve because you alone are God. So may Redeemer be a church that hallows God's name with a high view of God. Which brings us to core value number two. We believe the Bible determines everything. We believe the Bible determines everything. What we mean by that is this, the 66 books of the Bible are our highest authority in all matters regarding a person's salvation and growth thereafter. There's no other authority. There's no other supposed source of truth, no book, no person, no organization that is needed to be saved or to grow. No prophet, no church, no feeling, no experience, no tradition should bind the conscience of God's people. The Bible alone should do that and nothing else. All you need to know and do God's will for your life and all a pastor or team needs to, needs to lead a church is found in the Bible. And I want you to see this. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, that is page 1099 in those Bibles that we give away. 2 Timothy chapter 3, drop down to verse 15. Paul is explaining to Timothy, he's counseling him as, a, as, as Timothy's pastoring a church in Ephesus, which is a city in, in Turkey we could go to. It's a real place with real people. And in verse 15, Paul is reminding him why he should stay committed to the Bible. And, and the first reason is, it's because the Bible is, quote, verse 15, able to make you wise for salvation. That word able is so important. It speaks to a living book, a book that is alive, a book that's alive with the power to save people. Your Bible is not dead, full of, of opinions and error, having lost all the truths that are necessary for, to be saved. Far from it. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We've lost nothing in transmission. We, we have in our Bibles what was written by the original authors without any essential loss at all. The Bible has all the authority of God behind everything it says because its words come from God. Look at what it says in verse 16. All scripture is exhaled, is breathed out by God. Every part, every book, every verse, all scripture is exhaled by God. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 1.21, the authors of the Bible, quote, spoke from God. In other words, God is the source of the Bible. Though human authors put, put pen to paper, every verse, every word is from the mouth of God. And listen, this is Jesus' view of the Bible. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 4.4. 4. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth 
of God. So whatever the Bible says about anything, that is God speaking on that subject. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And since the Bible is God's word, there are no errors because God makes no errors. Since the Bible is God's word, it meets every spiritual need that God knows we have. And since the Bible is God's word, all of his authority stands behind everything that is written here. So to believe the Bible is to believe God, to trust the Bible is to trust God, to obey the Bible is to obey God, to disobey the Bible is to disobey God and to reject the Bible is to reject God because he has spoken here. And because God spoke in the Bible, notice verse 16, that makes the Bible profitable for us. That means it gives us a benefit. It, it blesses our lives. It changes our lives. It, it gives us, it, it works in our lives. And notice how it does that. It does that by teaching, by reproof, by correction, and by training us in righteousness. And notice all of that comes together with the goal, verse 17, that, that we are complete, equipped for how many good works? What does it say? Every good work, every single one, every good thing God wants you to do, the Bible equips you to do that. There's no need for prophets or other books or additional authorities or unbelieving philosophies or personal revelations. All of that is really a substitute for the Bible. The Bible gives the Christian everything we need to do any of the good things God wants us to do. Other things might be helpful, but nothing else is necessary. Whether it's salvation or growth thereafter, the Bible determines it all. So the only way anyone is going to come to Jesus in salvation, the only way anyone is going to grow in their love for him and their service to him is if we are all about the Bible here. If we aren't, if we're really about other things, if our focus gets off track and onto things like politics or money or miracles or community service or, or, or ministry or influence or whatever, if we get off track and onto those things, we will cut people off from the power they need to be saved and the power they need to grow after salvation, that power being here in the Bible. This takes us back to that teeter-totter with God on one side and us on the other. When God is down, the issues of this life become the primary focus. They become the primary uh, message that, that, that a church is going to, to promote is going to be this life kind of stuff. When God is up, he will be the focus. Our highest priority will be, what did God say? What does God want us to do? Where is God in this? What's the direction he wants us to go? And what does his word tell us to do? So we want the Bible to determine everything here, our mission, our values, what comes from this pulpit, every decision, every, every ministry, all the direction given in counseling, everything determined by the Bible. Because Human opinion is worthless compared to the words of this book that come from God. And we want God to be the leader of this church. And he leads through the preaching of his word. And as we saw, there is no salvation. There's no growth thereafter without the Bible. So let me, let me kind of summarize it by saying this. May God shut this church down if, if, if it ever lets a man or the culture or anything else other than the Bible determine anything that happens here. That brings us to core value number three which is we promote gospel centrality. We promote gospel centrality. Now that's jargony pastor speak. And so let me kind of break that down into its parts. We promote the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Now this good news needs bad news to highlight just how good this good news really is. And this good news starts with God. The God of the Bible is the only God that exists. He is your creator and he owns you. Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the earth belongs to God and everything connected to the earth belongs to God. And, and then the author uh, clarifies that the world 
and those who dwell therein belong to him. He created you and he owns you. He's also holy, which means he is separate from all sin. Another way to say that is that God is good. He is perfectly good. He, he gave us rules that reflect his goodness. And those rules were for our joy and our flourishing. We didn't agree, however. We don't see his rules that way. We've not only rebelled against his rules, but we've, we've kind of, we've looked down on him, not kind of looked down on him. We have looked down on him, which is putting it mildly. And we've done that many, many thousands of times. Our rebellion has made God our enemy, Romans 5.10. And the, the bad news is this holy and good God expresses his holy goodness by being just, by doing what's right. He always does what's right. And the right thing to do to his enemies is to punish them for their crimes. And because it's no small thing to rebel against this God who created everything and who owns you, because that is no small thing, the punishment for our thousands of crimes against him is hell forever. So God being your creator who is holy, good, and just is bad news. All of us are in big trouble with him. We just compare our lives to the 10 commandments. Anybody elevated something above God? That's idolatry. Anyone treated God like he's not there, like he doesn't matter? That, that's taking his name in vain. That's treating him like he's nothing. We've dishonored our parents. We've stolen things. We've lied. We've coveted things other people have. And again, we, we, we've done those things more than once. If we're honest, we've done those things many thousands of times. The good news, though, is that God is loving. And in his love, he sent Jesus so that whoever believes in him won't go to hell, but will have eternal life. Jesus did three things. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God's rules that none of us have ever done. He died the death that we deserve on the cross as our substitute. And third, he rose from the dead to prove everything he did and said was true. All of that is good news. It's the greatest news in the history of the world, but it does nothing for you personally unless you respond to that good news by believing in Jesus, which means trusting in him, trusting in him alone to save you, not your good works, not yourself, not some person or organization, just Jesus. We saw this in Titus 3, 5. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. All religions are based on human achievement. The gospel is divine accomplishment. God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he simply does it because he is kind and compassionate and merciful and gracious. So when you trust in Jesus to save you from the hell that you deserve for your sins, that I deserve for my sins, he not only becomes your savior, but, but he becomes your Lord. So you, you turn from your rebellion, you surrender your independence, you give him your life. And when anyone does that, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, when anybody does that, Jesus not only dies as your substitute, he not only receives the punishment you deserve for all your sins, but he trades your life of sin for his life of sinless perfection. And in that moment, God forgives you of all of your sin. He frees you from slavery to sin. He makes peace with his enemy so much so that he adopts you into his family and accepts you as if you were Jesus himself. That is good news. That is the best news that all of that was done for you and you just believe in Christ. And then the rest of your life as a Christian is not living in fear. Have I done enough to be saved? No, Jesus did everything you need to do to be saved. 
it. So, so your life as a Christian is simply living a life of obedience out of joy and gratitude and love for Jesus because he sets you free from all of your sins. That is the gospel. God is creator, holy, just, and loving. So come to Christ. Come to him. Give up your resume of good works. Do you know that your resume is not good enough to be accepted by a holy God anyway? Trade your resume for his and live in the freedom of sins forgiven. Live in the freedom of eternal life. Live in the freedom of being accepted by God as if you were Jesus himself. Now, gospel centrality is the idea that this gospel should be central to a Christian's life. If you're a Christian, hearing that message again wasn't like, oh, I've heard this before. If you're a Christian, hearing that again welled up emotions of gratitude to Jesus, right? It caused you to go, I love him more. That's the idea that the more you hear the gospel, the more you will be overwhelmed by your love for Christ, a Christ that loved you that much that you will leave here going, I wanna live for him. I wanna I want love him more. I wanna take him to more people because I can't believe the grace that he's shown me. That the gospel is not that the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z, it's, it's everything. One author put it this way, the gospel is not the, the first step in a stairway of truth, rather it's the hub in a wheel of truth. It impacts everything, every, every part of our lives. And, and you see this in the fact that the gospel does more than save your soul, it actually changes your life. It actually makes you more like Christ. So to a church in Corinth that was full of people who were giving in to temptation, Paul counsels them with, among other things, he counsels them with the gospel. First Corinthians 6.20, he says, you were bought with a price. That's gospel. Jesus died for you. He purchased you. He rescued you. And then the, the sentence continues. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He owns you, so live to show the world that he is better. He is greater than everything. That's how to, to fight temptation, Paul is saying, is remember the gospel. To another church that was full of Christians fighting each other, he says this, Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, all, all of these things, considering others more important, all of that. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of Jesus leaving heaven and, and coming here and being obedient to the point of death on a cross to save people. He reminds them of the gospel. Why? Because he knows it will be the gospel that motivates Christians to obedience. I could give you a dozen examples of this, where the centrality of the gospel in a Christian's life actually fuels and motivates and propels obedience. And so my goal every week is that you leave here with three things. It's at the bottom of your notes every week. It's that you leave here going, I understand the passage we talked about better. I understand how to live my life in light of that passage a little better. And third, I'm leaving here saying, Jesus is amazing. The higher I can raise your affections for Jesus, the more you will leave this place living for Jesus. And that's the goal. When you put these three core values together, this will deeply influence the kind of messages that will be preached in this church. So our fourth core value is this. We are committed to biblical preaching. We are committed to biblical preaching. We're committed to preach the Bible. Now, most, if not all churches are going to say they preach the Bible. So let me clarify what I mean by this. Actually, before I do that, I need you to hear me on this. Nothing I'm going to say right now is meant to criticize any other church or pastor. I know and love many of the pastors in this area. We all have different reasons for why we do what we do and how we do what we do. And we all think we're right. 
This point that I'm going to give you now comes from the elders and I six years ago wrestling with with one question. Why should this church stay open? Why? What's going to make this church distinct and not just a lesser version of other churches that are already here? If we're going to do the same thing, why not just close it down and we all go to those churches? Why us? Why here? Why now? And the answer to that question was answered by the first three core values and by what I'm going to explain now about the kind of preaching we wanted to see here. So first, the kind of preaching we're striving to do here is expository preaching. And if that word expository is new to you, what I mean by that is expository preaching does not start with a felt need. It doesn't start with a cultural trend. It doesn't start with a political position. Expository preaching doesn't start with us at all. It starts with a text. It starts with a chapter and a verse. It starts with the word of God. This is Paul's charge to Timothy that every pastor must take seriously. You're still in 2 Timothy. Look at chapter four, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, Paul doesn't usually front load commands like he did right there. I charge you, God is watching. Jesus is gonna judge and set up his, he doesn't do that all the time, but he does it here. And I think he does it here as the rest of the text shows, because there will be a temptation for pastors to preach what people want to hear rather than what God wants them to hear. One of my old pastors put it this way. I want the Bible to use me to teach its message. I don't want to ever use the Bible to teach my message. So in expository preaching, the point of the message is the point of the passage. My job is to be a mouthpiece for the Bible. Like like parrots, you know? Parrots say nothing original. They don't sit there and think and go, what do I wanna say and then say it? They simply say things they've heard other people say. That is the job of a pastor, to simply say what God has already said right here. I'm just simply to let the text speak no matter what the point is. We'll go wherever the text takes us, whether it's subjects that everyone applauds. That's what Paul says there, in-season kind of truth, truths that people are like, ah, oh, that's great, I love that. Or subjects that everybody hates. That's things, truths that are out of season. Doesn't matter. God knows best what all of us need, so the goal every week is to hear from him through the preaching of his word. Second, the kind of preaching we're striving to do here is exegetical preaching. Another fancy pastor word. So let me just explain that what that means is this. We're going to dig down into the soil of the biblical texts, like that show Gold Rush. We're going to be miners of spiritual gold that is only found in the word of God. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 4, 4, one more time. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not just every section, not just every chapter, every word is inspired. Every word comes from God, so every word should be given attention, the attention it deserves. Now, I never want to skim across the top of the text, and the reason is this, and I don't want the other pastors to either, and the reason is this. We don't have the prerogative to edit God, to say to God, well, God, you know, that part wasn't important enough for me to teach your people. Really? Like you puny man can figure that out? I don't think so. I could have done, I was talking to someone last week and they said, we, 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 we're grateful that you took so long to go, like really long to go through Titus. And I actually laughed, but I said, but they said, we're grateful for that because we know you could have done Titus in one message. And it's true. I could do do the whole Bible in 66 messages. But do you know how much we would miss if we did that? And here's the thing. 
We went slowly through Titus on purpose because the details matter. The details matter significantly. I'm not going to be a big idea preacher. I'm going, to, I'm going to support what I say with the details in the text and other texts as well so that you see what he is saying is coming from the Bible. You should see those details supporting the big idea. You should, those details should give you confidence that, that what I'm saying is really coming out of the Bible. Because at the end of the day, I don't, nobody, no pastor determines what is important for you to hear. God determined what is important for you to hear, and he determined it by putting it here. So come expecting to roll up your sleeves. Come expecting to do a little heavy lifting each week. Come expecting a meal. Come expecting steak, not candy or an appetizer. We're going to dig in to the word of God here. Third, the kind of preaching we're striving to do here is exaltational preaching, more pastor speak for the goal of preaching is that we worship God, that, that, we, that we see God as more glorious and more great and, and more wonderful because we're hearing from him. I want God to get bigger because in your heart, because you go to church here. And that won't happen unless the pastors here preach a big God. Shallow preaching produces shallow worship and shallow Christian living, but preaching a high view of God pushes us into the deep end. And I remember another pastor of mine, constantly saying to us, you worry about the depth of your ministry and God will take care of your, the breadth of your ministry. And then he said, listen, the people in your church will rarely ever go deeper than you take them. So take them as deep as you can take them into God's word and that will raise them as high as you can in worship to that God. Don't skim, take them deep, let them know the depths of the Lord. And so all of those things were, okay, okay, that's what we're gonna do. Because every message at the end of the day should be a coronation service where we are, we are gathering together and crowning Jesus as king in our hearts and our lives. And that's every week. I want you to leave here with a sense of God on your soul. I want you to leave saying Jesus is worth living for. He's even worth dying for if I was called to that because he is so great. He is so wonderful. He is such a great God and savior. Biblical preaching exalts God. It, it heightens our view of God. Fourth, the kind of preaching we're striving to do here is earnest preaching. I hope you're feeling that. Earnest means serious. It means intense. It means wholehearted. It means with gravity. Listen to the description of Paul's preaching at the end of Acts. Acts 28, 23 says, from morning till evening. Aren't you glad that we just have like a one hour service? From morning till evening, he expounded, which means he clarified, he explained the text. He's doing expository preaching. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. He wasn't giving a talk. This key word testifying means to solemnly assert, to earnestly affirm. He is, and he's doing, he's trying to convince people to give their lives to Jesus. So preaching should be earnest. 2 Corinthians 7, 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men trying to persuade you because we know that God is watching. And, and if you think about it, we're not talking about lighthearted things when we come to church. Think about it. What, what we're doing here each week, it's not a show. Fun and games, you find those at the local malls or whatever. The preaching here should seek to match the gravity that God himself is speaking from his word to us every single week. And not only that, eternal destinies are at stake every weekend. Heaven and hell is in the balance. Every message, final judgment is on the horizon for all of us. 
And if we think that's true, we can't come here and be like, hey, high five, oh, it's so funny, blah, blah, blah. Like, we can't do that. Because this, the biblical preaching takes reality seriously. Reality is not what's going on on our news. Reality is what's going on behind our news. Is the God of heaven and earth exists and is real, and heaven and hell is real. And this here in churches, this is where we hear the pathway to heaven to avoid hell. That is the ultimate reality. And we can never forget that. And fifth and finally, the kind of preaching we're striving to do here is encouraging preaching. There is a balance between being earnest and being encouraging. And the hope is that you feel both. It should be, it should, there should be an encouragement that, that instills hope into troubled hearts. It, it should, you should just pour encouragement into your life, right? Because Jesus was full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. And so should the preaching. We're to speak truth and we're to do it in love, Ephesians 4, 15. You should get the sense that those who are preaching here at this church really care about you and your family because listen, we, we actually do. We pray for you. We call you. We, we email you. We want to stay connected to you because we love you and you should feel that coming out of those who preach. Preaching should not be so serious that it becomes cold and stuffy and not pastoral. It should lift us up and hold us up when we're discouraged. It should, many are beaten down all week, whether it's at home with, with kids or at job or, or just living in the world, social media, you feel beaten down and, and you should come here and, and be lifted up. The preaching should be the wind in your sails so that you, you enter the week going, I, I wanna live for God more. I wanna, I wanna love Christ more because of, of the, the encouragement that I received from my church. A lot more can be said. I actually did a 49-minute message on just this value. You can find it on our website. That's the kind of preaching that I've sought to do here as we've gone through Mark and Galatians and Jonah and Ruth and Titus and Psalms 1 through 10 the past six years. I know that's what Costi's trying to do every time he's up here preaching through 1 Peter or when he's preaching through 1 John to your students. I know that's what Pastor Daryl is seeking to do as he takes us through the Sermon on the Mount on Tuesday nights. I know that's what Kyle is seeking to do whenever he preaches. I know that that's what Joe does is when he's preached up here, taking us through the book of Philemon. But this steady diet of preaching Preaching here is, is we just go through books of the Bible because as we saw before, no one is saved without the Bible. Nobody grows after salvation without the Bible. So we preach the Bible. And even though you might be sitting there like, well, you didn't do that today. Well, even when we do topical messages like this one, the goal is topical exposition. So that whatever the point is, you're seeing this point is supported by scripture after scripture after scripture so that you leave here going, that's what the Bible says because that's the goal. So this fall, we're going to do a short series on the Bible and revival. We're going to look at the revivals in the Old Testament. We're also going to go through another minor prophet. We did Jonah. We're going to do another one. And then in the new year, we're going to start the gospel of John because the, the goal is to see Christ. It's been, it's been a few years since we were in Mark and there's just a, in my soul, like I just, I just want to get back in a gospel. I just want to see Christ again. So I hope that that's what you want too. Now, where should all this preaching ultimately take us? Listen to author J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer talking about preaching said this, quote, the heart of our message on each occasion must be an application. So he's talking about preaching must be an application of biblical material to the heart and the conscience. And here's the goal to lead folk to know, love, worship, and serve God through Jesus Christ. So even the preaching is connected to the mission of helping people know, love, and serve Jesus. So our mandate, our mission, help people know, love, and serve Jesus. How do we do that? 
by having a high view of God, by, by believing the Bible determines everything, by promoting gospel centrality, and by being committed to biblical preaching. And the rest of our values, which we're going to look at next week, they're all going to flow out of these first four. You, you don't have values uh, five through nine unless values one through four are firmly in place. Without those four values, without them firmly in place, well, we're never going to be the kind of church God wants us to be. We're, we would be floating on the sea of the pastor's opinions or the staff's preferences, or we'd be floating on the sea of the whims and wishes of the culture. I believe with all my heart that a church that values these four core values we've looked at today, a church that, that lives in light of those values, that is committed to those values, I believe those values will make all of us who go to church here more likely to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, as these values are, are more and more embraced in our hearts, in our lives, and in the life of our church. May God do that and continue to do that here. Let's pray.